This is the Art of Quality podcast. The Art of Quality is a series of conversations with investors and operators of high-quality backgrounds. From decades of exploring quality in business and life, we have found that the underlying patterns are often only accessible via stories and dialogue, and not with more research notes or Excel models. We are here to bring patterns of quality to you. To find more episodes of The Art of Quality, go to theartofquality.co. In this podcast, we are joined by Peter Malizia, who has spent 26 years at Costco Canada. Costco is a membership-only big-box retail business with more than 850 stores worldwide. Charlie Munger once referred to Costco as the best business in the world in its category. Our guest Peter deeply embodies everything Costco and helps us understand what small yet powerful patterns of quality persist in Costco even to this day. I think, Peter, the, there, there are many different elements to, to the Costco business that would be interesting to unpick. But I think the, the one question I think that would be really helpful to, to kind of understand about your journey and um, I guess your, your experience within the team is to understand like what mattered, what, what did the organization care about? By extension, what did the culture care about? And, and if we were to think about this as a painting that you were trying to paint within the business, uh, what actually mattered? How did you, what, what were the focus areas of the culture generally? Sure. Well, I'll try to give you a, a, a summary of a lot of different things. I think the first thing, uh, for people to uh, understand if they don't know about it is the six rights. So these were six, uh, I wouldn't call them rules, but six guidelines that were put forth way, way back, probably well over 30 years ago. And they are the right merchandise in the right place at the right time in the right quantity in the right condition at the right price. And that was the whole uh, driving force and still is. Uh, the, the six rights were the things that you were questioned if you were to propose something that was maybe a little bit off the wall, maybe not as, as vanilla as it might usually be. The first question was, does it fit in the six rights? If it doesn't, not worth pursuing. So that was a, a, a big uh, part of that learning phase for everybody when they first started with the company. Um, you know, the right merchandise was quality products. There was no question of buying something just because it was inexpensive. You might sell a lot of it, but in the long run, that wasn't beneficial. The right place was, obviously, the merchandise had to be kind of speak for itself because there's no flashy displays at Costco. Most of the products sitting on steel or on pallets or pallets under steel, whatever the case may be. So it, the product had to speak for itself. The right time was mostly seasonality, early in, early out. People always ask me the question, how can you sell snowsuits in July in Canada when it's 32 degrees in the shade? And the, the answer is simple. You get them in early, people see them, they're going to buy them. The price is fantastic. And you're out by September, let's say. And that's when everybody starts selling the product. And usually we'll discount it. If you have a winter like we're having now, we still have no snow at all. It's very, very mild up here. So it's a very unusual winter. If you're trying to sell snowsuits right now, you're having a hard time for sure. Um, in the right quantity, turnover was a big, big, is a big part of the whole machine. That product has to turn. 
because you're making money. Some of the profit you're making, a tiny bit of the profit you're making is the difference between your payment terms and how quickly you're selling the product. So if you're paying for the product in 30 days, but you're turning it over every week, you've got three weeks there where you're not, you've already sold the product and you haven't paid for it yet, which is something that most companies can't even dream of doing. But at Costco, it was a big deal. Every department had has a turnover rate and a turnover goal. And that, that was a big, big part of the, uh, of the machine for sure. Uh, the right condition, like I said before, only high quality product. And the right price, that was the, the biggest thing. It was the, and still is the biggest focus. You know, the, it's got to be a competitive price. There has to be value for the member. They're paying for the privilege of shopping at Costco. And if you're not showing them any value, they are certainly either going to stop shopping there or they're going to let you know that, hey, you're not doing this properly and I want my money's worth or else I'm going to go elsewhere. And as you know, the, the membership revenue, it's pretty much public knowledge. You could look and look it up in the statements. The membership revenue is what makes the company turn a profit. If there's no membership revenue, there's no way that Costco can make money, not on the margins that they're putting out there with the wages that they're paying. The last number I saw was something around 70% of the cost of running Costco is labor. And that makes sense because the people are very well paid from the cashier level to the assistant manager level to the warehouse manager level to the office level where there's executives. There's a, 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 a large, large, much larger than normal percentage of cost tied to labor. But it makes sense because there's very little turnover. Most people are promoted from within. It's quite rare that somebody comes from the outside and gets into a high-level position. They've got to pay their dues just like all the other managers did which is, you know, working in a warehouse and learning the ins and outs and, and, and moving up that chain. So it's, uh, I think that, that that's the biggest thing is the, the six rights were the base of, of everything. You know, we were always taught from the beginning that the member was the first thing. It was, there are other people that you want to make sure are satisfied, shareholders, stakeholders, employees, etc. But the member was the first person in line. If that member is not satisfied, and that's why that sign is over the membership counter. If you're not 100% satisfied, bring it back. And that return policy took a lot of heat over the years. And, and Jim publicly came out at some point when there was a fair amount of controversy. And he said, it's not changing. This is the way we do things. I know some of the buyers don't like it. I know some of the execs don't like it. I know that it hurts some departments more than others. But this is the way it's gonna it's gonna be. People are paying for a membership. If they're not happy with something, I don't care if they've had it in their house for a year and a half and that the manufacturer's warranty is no longer valid, not even a factor for me. If they're not happy, we're taking it back. They're getting their money back. So that was a big part of what we learned right off the bat. Uh, one good quote from Jim was uh, culture is not the most important thing in the company, it's the only thing. It dictates every action you take. We feel we have to work continuously to not lose our culture. The way our employees describe it is do the right thing. And that was a pretty good summary of what we were always, always, we learned it when we were there for a while. If you came from another retailer, it was a foreign policy in some cases where somebody might say, well, why would we do that? I mean, this is, we're being taken advantage of here. And the answer was always, Possibly, yeah, but it's a member. How much did they pay for the card? 
If they're an executive member, they paid over $100 for that card. So we're going to make them happy. I mean, you'd get the odd case where it was totally out of hand. That's going to happen no matter what business you're in and no matter who you're with. But it was a huge, huge exception. I would say over 99% of the time, well over 99% of the time, it was a tiny little fractional exception. It was pretty much the customer's always right. In this case, it's the member's always right. And we're going to make sure they're happy because, you know, there's no advertising. How do you continually have a 90% plus renewal rate? And how do you attract new members? Basically, word of mouth, because you're not seeing a radio ad, you're not seeing a TV ad, nothing in print. There's absolutely zero advertising. So if you can't maintain that, that level of service, that level of commitment, that level of value, you would lose members and you can't afford to do that. It's, it's really interesting um, that one of the things I've always admired about the model is um, almost how much respect is given to the customer relationship. Um, so I guess the, the question that I'd ask is, it, it, it appears from the outside that Costco is able to monitor the value it's giving to customers generally in in a better way than most other businesses. So they monitor whether it's service level or whether it's product quality. They seem to just be pushing boundaries that many other businesses aren't able to push for whatever reasons. I guess, is there anything um, when you think about that feedback loop of being able to say, how much value are we delivering to the customer? And have we increased that level of value this year or not? Like, how did you measure that? And was it over a quarterly period, a yearly period, a 10-year period? Like, just any anything on that would be really interesting to to, to just un, unpack. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it was a huge and is a huge focus. It was, uh, at our level, as a manager, um, it was a weekly uh, focus. So we have, I keep saying we, I'm, I don't work there anymore, but it's too easy to say we. Uh, Costco has a dedicated group of people in the field, as well as the buying staff that constantly check prices. Uh, there's there's a system uh, within the buying system that allows buildings or building personnel to go in and say, we found this price Less, we found this less expensive than what we're selling it for. Now, in some cases, it may not be the exact same thing. I mean, electronics was always tricky because of models and features and that kind of thing, right? It's not very easily identifiable. It's not like butter or milk or eggs. That's pretty easy. But nonetheless, if there was a question, one of the staff would go out and check it. They'd actually go in. I mean, in the old days, it was Target was a huge focus because Target was trying to get into Canada. And they opened up six stores in Ontario to try to get a foothold. And the whole um, company, the whole focus for that period of time was, we've got to stop them right here. They cannot go any further. We have got to beat them on every single price. We have to be in there every day. We have to see which vendors they're dealing with, what items they're carrying, at what price. And... It worked the same way it worked when Sam's Club tried to open in the early 2000s and were not successful, which was shocking to most people because Sam's is part of Walmart and they're very successful. But, you know, we'd been there too long. I mean, Sam's was trying to do the exact same thing we were and take over in an area where we were already very strong with good coverage. 
and they weren't successful because of that fact. Also, that we 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 really did a big focus on them. But Target was even bigger because I think the feeling was Target could have two, three hundred stores in Canada easily if they did it right. And if they were to do that, there's no question market shares would change. And it was a huge um, initiative. So. A good example of how that worked, but on a day-to-day basis or a weekly basis, there was all kinds of of of, uh, of comp pricing that would be available in the inventory system. Uh, if, if as a buyer or an AGMM or a GMM, if we saw, you know, it was kind of religion. Every Thursday up here, we got all the advertising for the weekend. So the big guys like Canadian Tire and Walmart and et cetera, their flyers hit on a Thursday. Well, somebody would be in the office at like 7 a.m. with just a pack of flyers. And then we'd spread them out and we'd go through them. And we'd say, oh, mm. that's a problem. Now, if it was a big problem, it well, even if it was a small problem, if it could be adjusted immediately, it was. The pricing was. And if you couldn't, because your cost didn't enable you to get there, you were on the phone with the vendor that morning. Okay, what can you do for me? Because Walmart's at 1988 and we're at 1999. That doesn't work. Pretty religious, I would say, if there was one thing that you just did not let up on, it was competitive pricing. It was just a, uh, uh, it was as much of a mantra as it was to respect the members and make sure they're getting their value and, and et cetera. I would put competitive pricing right on that level. So you mentioned earlier kind of the 90% retention rate. Was was there a, a kind of a weekly process around how are we doing on retention? Um, what is the, the duration of our relationship with our customer going to be? Any any feedback loops in, in that area um, would be interesting to explore. Yeah, so every building, every warehouse has and has a renewal rate target, which is always a little bit higher than what it was before. That's just the nature of the beast. Uh, they were actively on top of that. Uh, we would be comparing rates from the previous year, sometimes even the previous six months. Really watch it closely when you opened another building in the same area as an existing one to see how many people shifted. Did When you opened that new building, was it 70% new members and 30% people who used to shop at the old one? Or was it a higher or lower? Mm-hmm. That was something that was watched very carefully. And then the the membership staff basically entrusted with, as well as marketing, because they're the only marketing that really Costco does is their own internal type of marketing with the Costco magazine and and with some of the type of promotional type products that they'll use now and then, like a you know a coupon book or or something of that nature. And there's always like a a refer a friend program or, or yeah. something along those lines. And, and that's something that was always measured very closely. So those directions would come from, from the head office, the head of the marketing team. They would do a couple of programs a year to, to try to retain and re-sign new members. I think part of the automotive program, that was a big part of that too, to sell cars. I don't know if they do that in the UK. They certainly do it here and in the US. Um, that was an incentive to... Yes, you're saving $1,000 when you buy new cars from Costco, but you know you got to get a card. And if you're getting a card, you may as well get the executive card because that's going to give you more, more rewards, more, more dollars back at the, end of the, at the end of the year. So it was something that was uh, always a big, big target. You walk into any building office and they're very sparse, but they do have a big whiteboard there. And the first whiteboard after sales of the day versus yesterday versus last year, the next line was membership. 
how many signups do we have? How many did we have last year? How many renewals? What's our renewal rate? If there are new businesses that moved into a, an area, big, big drive there. They would literally, and still do, they, they would literally go on the premises and explain to maybe, you know, 100 employees or 200 employees, but however large the company was, they would explain to them all the benefits of, of why it's a good idea to be a Costco member and what you get back from it. And it, it was a, a pretty well, a well-oiled machine, certainly in my day. I'm sure it's the same because the membership desk has is, is got always a fair amount of people. Uh, they don't put one person on the membership desk. It's an area of focus. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess, was there a set number in terms of renewal rate that you were looking for? And, and was there, like, what, what would have been a, a poor-performing store relative to top-performing store in terms of the, the renewal rate generally over the course of a decade, let's say? Yeah, it's a good question. I think any time a, a, a location got under about 88 or 87%, there was some concern, unless there was a very good reason for that. And a good reason would have been a newer building moving in fairly close by. I mean, there's some, the Ottawa area, as an example, now has five buildings. Uh, when I started, they had two. So that's, that's a big difference. Ottawa's only a million people. It's not that big a city. Toronto's, you know, there's, I don't know, 20 in all in GTA, Greater Toronto. So there's a big difference in numbers, but the idea is the same. You, you, when you can get, when you figure you're close to 80 to 100,000 people, a Costco location can be sustained with that population. Now, if you're going into an area where, sure, there's a million people, but they're kind of all spread out everywhere, that gets a little tricky. Uh, they've been successful. I mean, every building here is, is generally in the top 10, if not the top 20, for sure. Uh, in the total company. But yeah, yeah, I would say over 90% was certainly the goal. And if you mm. dipped under 88 or so, then we're starting to look at why and what do we do to fix it? And I, I guess from a, a story perspective, and, and then it goes, I'll, I'll hand over. But I, I guess just on this specific area, I, I always get the sense that culturally, there's two things that I've always observed. Um, one is um, Costco seemed to, to keep this as simple as, as it can be. Right. So the, if in the retention feedback loop and in these data points, uh, I find that many other retailers get overly complex on dashboards and overly complex on KPIs and overly complex on efficiencies of balance sheets. And, and as you said, the cash collection exercise, they almost overly focus on it and lose it, their attention on the, the really important metrics. Are there any stories or any kind of unusual elements that you can think of that kind of might bring to light for folks that the kind of quality of of um i don't know stories or of of jim and the team or or even just culturally kind of how you guys lived that principle of simplicity when it came to that um yeah well that's obviously a, a key element i think of success of costco was keeping it simple it, it always was from the very beginning even when i started in 91 and we only had eight locations in Canada back then. We have 105 now. When we had those eight locations, it really didn't change all that much as far as what the, your focus was. It was you have a range of margin, and that range is 0 to 14%, and 15 for KS, for Kirkland Signature, because it's the private label brand. And, and that's, that's your range. So it's not very complicated. I, I don't have any question as to... Oh, should I maybe go to $29.99 and I can make 18%? No, no, you can't do that. It's $27.99. You can't go. You, it's 14 
That's mm. the end of the story. So it made that area very easy. Uh, the other easy area was nothing fancy when it came to presentation. You basically developed from the beginning of selling product out of brown cardboard boxes, literally boxes that were shipped from the manufacturer. You transition that into more colorful type packaging. And then, of course, trays are the staple of Costco now. So much product goes in trays because the trays can be stacked and they can be visually uh, easy to look at. But I think I think Jim had a, a really good story one time when, when someone said, why do you guys only carry 12 SKUs of cereal? Might be more than that now, but why do you only carry 12 SKUs of cereal? And so it's very easy. We carry 12 SKUs of cereal. We give it 12 pallets. It comes in, the forklift driver puts it underneath the steel, and that's the end of the story. If you go down a grocery aisle, you might have 300 SKUs of cereal. You've got somebody opening every single box that comes in and placing them on the shelf and replacing them fairly frequently if it's a good seller because you can only give it so much space when you've got 300 SKUs. So he said that that's the whole basis for every item almost in, in, the, in the warehouse is make it very simple to ship, receive, and put on the floor. And the amount of people that hand bomb product are very, very few. You've got clothing, you've got books, um, you've got some of the fresh side. Of course, you can't put some, can't put meat on a pallet, it goes in a cooler. But I mean, that's not the, the vast majority of the product. The vast majority of the product shows up on a pallet, on a on an approved Costco pallet, so you don't have to transfer anything. You maximize your your uh, your your freight, especially if you're coming in with a full truckload or you're coming in with a container. Uh, a lot of people probably don't know this, but uh, there is a whole department that is uh, based solely on maximizing freight, cube, and efficiency. It's not a big department in Canada. I think there's about four people in there. Yeah, about four. But what they do is they they a try to uh, eliminate waste. I guess the best way to do it is there's a good example, and it was the Kirkland Signature nuts used to come, all the nuts, the mixed nuts, the cashews, they all came in a round container. And that round container would go in a tray, and the trays would be stacked, and the product would be shipped. Problem is, when you put a round container in a square box, you have gaps. You've got open air there. Every round container next to each other has gaps. So the freight department said, hey, you know what? If we went to a square, we could add about 44 units per pallet. And the, the freight cost is exactly the same. So now you've got 44 units more on a pallet. You're not paying any more freight. Your freight cost just went down. So your efficiency went up. You've got more units on the pallet. And you might even be able to reduce the price to the member, assuming the cost of, of your, your product hasn't changed. Unfortunately, that's an area where costs have gone up a lot. But in the old days, I can remember seeing those products go down in price just because freight was a big factor. Mm -hmm. So... It's the simplicity on the operation side was absolutely paramount. And on the buying, on the acquisition side, more detail, still simple, but more detail to make it simple. I think that's probably the best way I could describe it. As a buyer, I was a buyer way back when. And that, and that was one of the things that we, we looked at the most. We would call a vendor and, and say, what's the best way for us to get your product into our warehouses? That was just an open-ended question. What's the best way? Not the way you do it with Best Buy or Walmart or Target. What's the best way? If you could tell me the most efficient way that you could get your product into our locations, what would that be? And they were pretty good. They'd come back mm -hmm. with some 
pretty honest and, and good ideas. It wasn't all about saving money. Yes, you did save some money doing it in most of the time that way, but it was also about just keeping it very simple, getting the product faster. Mm-hmm. Having an order, ordering on Monday and getting it in on Wednesday is a huge advantage over ordering on Monday and getting it the following Monday. Uh, that, mm. that could kill you at Costco because you could be out of stock the whole weekend. It's, um, Peter, just it's, on John here, just uh, on that, on that point with um, one of the things I found really interesting. So from, from Costco's sort of perspective of let's treat, you know, members, employees, suppliers, et cetera, well, I, I think particularly in the area of retail, there's, you know, maybe it's a common to value the customer and probably a whole lot less common to treat your suppliers <laughs> really well and probably more common to kind of beat them up. So could, could you say a little more on how, I mean, it, it's sort of interesting, obviously, as you said, you've got, you know, your, your margins are going to be, you know, zero to 14 or zero to 15% and that's it. So de facto, when you go to a supplier, you're kind of going to them saying we need the best possible price and terms and, and all the rest of it. But obviously you also value that relationship. So could you say a little more on how, how was that done? There's sort of an inherent friction of we want the best price, but we also want a great relationship. So how, how was that managed? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point that I think a lot of people don't really think of, but we talked about that a lot. I mean, Jim's, Jim's theory and, and belief was he believed when you dealt with large businesses, you tried to use RFPs as much as you could. So you would put the business out for a bid and you would get X amount of large multinationals, in most cases, that would come in and make a bid for that business. And the best man wins, the best offer wins. And that worked really well in areas with large vendors that sold competitive products. I think tires was probably the best example. And I was in tires for quite a while. So you would have Michelin and and uh, Pirelli and Bridgestone in, our, in Canada that would be bidding for the business. And in some cases, it might be a segment. It, you know, maybe Bridgestone had the market on SUV tires, which they kind of do. But Michelin had the market on something else. And Pirelli had the market on more sports-driven tires. So we'd just go out and 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 make give them the opportunity to bid on basically everything. And then we'd go back and say, well, you know what? You're really not that competitive on the passenger tire, but you're really good on the performance area. So how about you get that business and it's worth this much to you? And they wouldn't say no. So that was one way to get out there. But to, dealing with a smaller vendor was a far different uh, approach because you had to, and a lot of times you have to teach them because they were small. They didn't know what the best way to make efficiencies to to ship product in, in as inexpensively as possible to um, to not store too much product to maybe ship more in one shot. Uh, especially when you're dealing with Costco, you can still turn it quickly. I mean, I remember one at one point in Canada there was this big push where um, retailers like Zellers, who are no longer with us, and the Bay, who are barely with us, but Walmart's still going strong, and a few others, who talks about retailers charging fees and making vendors lower costs so their profits were higher. And that was never acceptable. It wasn't acceptable to us. It it was uh, any vendor that was not being treated fairly was generating a conversation. And I mean, the the one thing that was always important and and always in your mind when you were contemplating maybe changing an item or changing a vendor, all the incumbent vendors had the right of first refusal. So what that basically means is if someone was trying to buy the business from them, in other words, you've got, I don't know, I'll use a stupid example. You've got Duracell batteries and Energizer's trying to buy that business. You would first go back to Duracell and say, listen, 
we've got a good relationship. We've had good sales. Everything's gone fairly well. You have a competitor and you would never name who it is. They'd figure it out on their own. You have a competitor who has come in here with a really good bid. You're going to have to go back and see if you can't find a way to make us a better deal. And that might be in a variety of ways. Maybe it changes how it's packaged. Maybe it changes how it's shipped. Maybe it changes where it's shipped to. Uh, maybe at the maybe you increase a pack size. A lot of people say, geez, why do the pack sizes always seem to get bigger? Well, you can always get a better deal when your pack sizes are higher. And you can also be more exclusive when your pack sizes are higher. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of the products wound up being in a larger multi-pack or a bonus pack or something like that. That was really the reason. It was A, to differentiate ourselves and B, to also get the best per unit cost that you could possibly get. And that worked out uh, fairly well over the years. I mean, other people have obviously uh, copied that. You do see some other uh, retailers these days that, uh, that do that as well. But it, it, was, it was very good. I mean, he didn't tolerate, and we didn't tolerate treating small vendors with a big stick. That was, it was, uh, you do not make any kind of ultimatum with a smaller vendor. Because the thing you had to keep in mind was you could put somebody out of business very easily. You're, you're the, you're the Goliath and, and he's the David and, and you're, you're, you're dealing with a small business. Some of the smaller businesses were maybe 10, 20 employees. They couldn't supply a hundred Costco's, but they could certainly supply a region like Ottawa or Montreal or something like that. So you had to be very conscious of that. And the other thing was we were always upfront with all of the larger guys to say, we don't want to be more than 25% of your total business in Canada. So if we're more than 25%, we got to start looking at how we can diversify. Because if we wind up being 50% of your total business and we decide that we don't want to be in that business anymore and we pull the plug, you're probably out. You're gone. You're dead. We can't have, that can't be our responsibility. That was a pretty big focus. We would do a review every year before we started the new year. Okay, let's see what's their, what's their ask them what their total business is. Let's see what ours is. Let's find, look at that number, make sure we're okay. Didn't happen very often, but it did happen now and then. And we'd have the conversation because we just didn't want to be in a position where our decision could literally put somebody out of, out of business. That's really interesting. And so th- thinking ahead for uh, thinking about the risk within your suppliers, very interesting. If I can maybe pull on that thread a little bit. the So one of the things I love about being a Costco member is, is ironically, the limited number of SKUs. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in you only need one kind of, of mustard or whatever. Uh, but but how would you select that? And and maybe if I just add a little bit to that, as you know, you know sometimes you you go to Costco and there's you know there's there's one kind of mustard and that's it. Sometimes you go and you can buy Duracell batteries, but you can also buy Kirkland brand batteries. And so you're in some sense, I suppose, competing with some of your suppliers. So how did you kind of select SKUs to keep the number you know relatively modest and, and also decide when and how you're going to to compete or not compete directly with what your suppliers were providing. Yeah. So when it, when it came to selecting an item and let's, let's, we'll just use mustard as an example. It's a good one. So, you know, the feeling was that you really didn't need much choice there. And so uh, in Canada, one of the big things, and I'm sure the U S is the same and maybe even in other parts of the world, one of the big focuses was if you can buy a product that's made in Canada and you can put that little Canadian flag at the bottom of the bottle, the bottom of the package, the bottom of the box, that's a, that's a big deal. If you can do it and not 
have to pay for it. It doesn't cost you anymore. You do it. So uh, a good example is some of the manufacturers who had uh, manufacturing in Canada over the years. So obviously, things change and you can go overseas or you can go to the States where maybe there's an incentive to do so, right? There's better tax uh, better taxation rates or whatever the case may be. And sometimes you have to stay with that brand. I mean, the, I guess the biggest focus was market share. You know, if, if Heinz has 80% of the market in ketchup, it's going to be pretty tough to go with an off brand unless there is a compelling reason to do that, which would pretty much have to be just a phenomenal price. Uh, that would be pretty much the only way you could do it. And, you know, the, the, the difficult thing there is the vendor knows that too. So that's why it's always difficult to, to stay super competitive with stuff like Heinz ketchup and, and, uh, and um, what was the other one? Kraft Dinner. Some of the real brands that just stay on the market. I mean, sometimes that changes over time, but that was always a tough one. When it came to going private label, that kind of ties into it to a certain degree. Sometimes private label, and of course, private label means Kirkland Signature. There is no other private label brand than Costco. Going KS was sometimes to get away from competition. If you just could not compete with the brand and the brand didn't want to work with you, the option was, okay, let's go KS. If we go Kirkland Signature, we're eliminating all of the money that vendor spends on advertising, publicity, maybe their costs aren't super efficient. Uh, there might even be tariffs coming in from another country that we can avoid by going uh, private label. And we'd go that way. The other time you'd use it was in a, in a category of product that every single retailer had a private label offer that would be far less expensive than the brand. And just as an aside, the Kirkland Signature Battery is probably the most successful private label venture and made by Duracell. KS is made by Duracell. Duracell wasn't stupid. When they went and said, listen, you know, we're having a tough time staying competitive in the market. We're, we're going to come up with a Kirkland Signature brand of battery, and it's going to affect your sales. And they said, well, we can do what we can on the brand, but how about if we made the batteries for you and we make them 40% cheaper? <laughs> That's what wound up happening. It's the same battery out of the same plant. I actually Amazing. visited the plant and it's, so there is nothing different. It's on the same assembly. It's just a label. That's all it is. And car batteries were exactly the same. Uh, I visited Johnson Controls a couple of times in the US and they had a Costco line of product that was being built and then they had everybody else. And all it was, was a different label on top of the battery. That was it. So you've spoken about this simplicity that, that pervades activity in the business across operations. How, Peter, was this simplicity taught? How was doing the right thing taught and brought to life? And maybe you can take us through your own experience of how these this simplicity and this idea of the right thing was taught to you and, and how you would then teach it throughout your career? Yeah, I think um, the word teach was was huge because uh, Jim had publicly stated many times, stated at every single one of our managers' meetings and every floor walk that he did, he would take all the managers aside and said, you know, you guys, first thing you have to do, 90% of your job is to teach. You have to teach your staff, the prospective people that are going to be promoted way down the line and the people that are going to take your job when you retire those people have to be taught the right way. You guys have learned the right way from the beginning. That has to be passed on. If you're not teaching, you're just not doing your job. 
So the way I learned and the way I would always show someone is we would spend a day in a warehouse and we'd get there at like 5.30, 6 a.m. Some of the trucks are still delivering product at that time. So we'd go in the building by, via receiving at the back end and we'd see all the product coming off and we'd see what the staff was doing. And then we'd go on to the floor and we'd actually help stock some of the stuff where, where some in human intervention was needed because a lot of it was just palace under the steel, but a lot of, some of it was hand bombing. When we did an opening, I always brought all of as many people as I could. I couldn't necessarily bring hourly people out of the city because you just can't do that for a lot of reasons. But if it was in, in Ottawa or even in Montreal, we would actually go in and help that building stock their first floor because they were learning at the same time we were. They were, they were stocking a brand new building. It was all virgin territory for them. So we would go on the floor and we would learn all that. And then we'd go over to the membership counter. And when the doors opened, you would see people come in with a return or a membership question or so on. And you'd see exactly what was going on there. And then a lot of times, I mean, Jim used to like to do this. When you're on a floor walk, he would just kind of look at the behavior of the, of the members. What are they looking at? What are they stopping to look at? What are they walking right by? What's the flow? Are they going down a lot of aisles? Are they going down no aisles? Are they going down every aisle? What belongs at the back end of the aisle versus what belongs at the front end? Well, the front end, obviously, you want your best foot forward. So your, your end aisles are usually your best-selling products, your best value products. Um, of course, vendors do pay for placement via an end cap. So sometimes you have items out there that, are, that the vendor has paid for that real estate. But one of the caveats of that was it's got to be a good selling item. You can't have a vendor take an item that's performing poorly and say, oh, I'll pay for an end cap to put it up front. No, it's got to stand on its own. If it wasn't selling well to begin with, you're just putting a Band-Aid on a, a very large cut. It's not going to work in the long run. So uh, we would do that also. We would take a look in our specific areas and see how, what the patterns were, where the people were going. Uh, I think that was right off the bat was, you know, we all had a common goal, which the common goal was excellence. It was never perfection because you got to make some, some mistakes for people to learn. And every once in a while, I'd have someone come in, the buyer would come in and say, my assistant buyer wants to do this and I'm not quite sure. I don't think it's a great idea. I'd say, okay, but is it going to hurt the business? Is it going to... Is it going to make something go really bad? Is, is a member being disadvantaged? Oh, no, no, it's nothing like that. It's just, I'm not sure it's going to be successful. I said, well, if it's not a huge investment, if it's not a huge commitment, let's try it. It's, it's, you're going to make mistakes. And not all of those were mistakes. Some of those were the best programs we ever, the best program I think we ever had in the company, to my knowledge, was rotisserie chicken. And I like telling that story because it started in Canada. Most of the big programs like that don't, but this one did. Rotisserie Chicken started in Canada, and it was a good friend of mine who was the meat AGMM, Claude. Claude came up with the idea that he said, you know what? Rotisserie Chicken is just like the biggest thing in restaurants and takeout and so on. We can do it. All we got to do is get the equipment and put it in the proper location, get trained on the equipment, buy the birds at a really good price, and put it out there at very low margin. And we're going to blow everybody away. We're going to be 4 or $5 less than anybody in the market. And we'll do really, really well. So he wound up trying it. And I think every single country has rotisserie chicken. Might be a couple of exceptions, but there's not many. It's probably the biggest program that exists in Costco. 
so it was that type of thing, very entrepreneurial, very, um, very open in the, in the respect of, hey, if it's worth trying, you try it. There is no guarantee of success. There's no guarantee of failure either. So you, if it's worth trying, you try it. If it's not worth it, then don't do it. It was a very simple thing that was that was put through positive attitude as well. It was never, you know, you never had, very rarely did you have somebody come in your office and throw up their hands in the air and say, oh, what are we going to do? No, it was usually they came in and said, well, we got a problem. I think we can maybe fix it doing this. I mean, have some frustration now and then for sure, but not common. It was it was a, 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 a thing that you had to approach it that way because being in retail, you know, as a, we always said this, as a buyer, you're never right. You either have too much or you don't have enough. You're never dead on, ever. And every boss you ever had will tell you that. Well, you're overstocked in this, but you don't have enough of that. So it's that kind of job. You, you, you have to maintain a positive attitude. I spoke about before promoting from within. That was a big thing. People saw that, of course. They knew that if they stayed with the company and, and learned and, and, and did a good job and, and were dedicated, that there was a very good chance that at some point they would move up. And, and it, it absolutely played out that way. There's, there's no question about it. Uh, one, one of the things we, we got across to people really early on, especially if someone never had experience in retail, was you don't take percentage to the bank. You take dollars to the bank. So in the grand scheme of things, I don't think Jim or my boss from Canada, Louise, I know Louise didn't, they really didn't care what the percentage was. Just make it work. If you can bring me a million dollars to the bank and you're selling a $100 million worth of product, or you can bring me $500,000 to the bank and you're selling $700,000 worth of product, I don't want that. I, I want the million. Uh, we, can, we can make it work. It, sales cures everything. It was one of the mantras. You know, I'm having trouble with my payroll this month. You know, you know to cure that, sales. Go out and drive some sales. Find a volume shopper. That was a, that was a big deal way back when. Find a volume shopper. Volume shopper can, can save you. Kind of guy that comes in and, and completely supplies his convenience store and he buys everything off Costco. And you see them coming out with the orange carts. Sometimes they'll have two carts. And it's just full of product. Those guys are gold. Those members are the ones that... That, that keep your business driving, usually on product that you don't make a ton of margin on, but they're 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 in there every week, and that offsets your payroll costs, and it offsets your your expenses, it offsets your your everything really everything to run a building. So it, it was it was um, it was one of those um, mantras that was repeated over and over again. Sales cures everything. You, you, it'll it'll help every single line. And it'll make the company successful. I'd love to ask what what do you feel was perhaps unique or important in Jim's behavior that that offered this or that drove this culture of of doing the right thing. And and we've you know we've spoken about the code of ethics and the and the the rights the six rights. Yes. Do you have some stories you can share about the way in which Jim was in his presence that might have um, really brought these these values to life? Yeah, there's a few for sure. I mean, I wasn't uh, privileged to to work right next to him, I, but I we did see each other at openings and and when he'd come into Canada to do floor walks. And the amazing thing I always found about Jim was when it came to the manager level, he didn't know your name because he had a name badge on. He, he knew you. 
he knew who you were. He knew what departments he had. He knew how long you'd been with the company. Um, little things that he, the details. My boss used to say the devil is in the details. She used to say that all the time. I used to hear that sometimes every day for a week. The devil's in the details. It wasn't to complicate the business, but it was to make sure you were covering everything so that when that product did hit the floor, you didn't have problems or whatever the service you were offering didn't have problems. When we launched online photo, which seems like a uh, hundred years ago, but that was one of my departments at the time. And when we launched online photo, it was, it was turning into a pretty big business back then. And we weren't in it at all because our website had just been launched. And um, so we, we, we had a technical fellow that helped us out and, and, the, and the photo buyer who reported to me. And when we had things pretty much set up, we picked our software vendor and they'd done everything. We said, you know what? Let's start it off in Winnipeg. Let's not go on the site live right away. We're just going to blow our brains out. Let, let's start in Winnipeg. So Winnipeg geographically is in the center of Canada. It's not west and it's not east. It's right in the middle. And it reflects both because there's two different cultures in Canada. There's the East Coast and there's the West Coast, and, and they're very different. So we, we took Winnipeg. We had three buildings in Winnipeg at the time. We promoted that they could do their photos online and so on. And we invited people to, to give us feedback. And we ran it for like six or eight weeks that way. And it was unbelievable how many things we learned, the, the things that went wrong, and the things we were able to correct, and the feedback we got. And that was the thing from Jim was listen to the members because they'll tell you this great story. The members will tell you. They'll either verbally tell you or they'll tell you by not buying, buying the product. It was one or the other. They're either going to tell you, hey, listen, I, I don't like this. This sucks. Or they're just not going to buy it. But they're telling you one way or the other. They're letting you know. Uh, it was always very interesting. I mean, the other thing that we, we obviously saw from Jim is he, he walked the talk, right? He, he did not take an outrageous salary. Sure, he made a ton of money on stocks like all CEOs do. But I mean, in the heyday when, when people were making millions of dollars a year, plus stock options, plus everything else, and he was drawing a salary of $350,000 a year, it was a statement. It was, I'm not any different from you guys. If the company succeeds, we'll do well. If the company doesn't succeed, we're not going to do as well. So it all benefits us to do the same thing, which is strive for excellence. That's, that's what you have to do. Uh, Jim wore Kirkland Signature shirts and Kirkland Signature pants and jackets on every single floor walk and opening that I ever saw. You could almost predict what shirt he was going to wear. Uh, it was, again, walking the talk. We offer Kirkland Signature shirts and pants and belts and, and they're good quality items. And that's what it's all about. That's what, you, that's what makes it what it is today. I mean, the, the early on, and I'll, I'll grant you that this has probably dropped off a bit, but in the early days, it was every penny counts. And that was to the point of flipping over a piece of paper that had writing on one side, but didn't have writing on the other side. You flipped over the paper and you used it. If you made a copy of the printer and it didn't work, that didn't print properly, that's good quality paper. So you flipped it over and you used it. We wouldn't use post-it notes for years. They're too expensive. Let's take a piece of paper and tape it. It's cheaper. It was that granular to expenses. If you can lower your expenses, you can give a better price to the member. If you can give a better price to the member, you're going to sell more product. And if you're going to sell more product, you're going to, you're going to succeed. It was a very simple, uh, I think, philosophy. You know, the story of Jim having this very small office with no door and no secretary is totally true. 
because I only got to see it once, but I was in Seattle at the office and somebody said, hey, do you want to see Jim's office? He's not here today, but I'll, I'll take you around. So he brought me over and I said, this can't be. It's like, it's a glorified cubicle. I said, no, no, that, that, that's where he is. He's not here that often anyway. He's usually out in buildings, but that's his office. And if you call him, he answers the phone if he's there. Now, if he's not there, we'll switch off to somebody. But if he's around and that phone rings, he's picking it up. It quite different from, from most companies, I would think. I don't know that firsthand, but I would think. Um, you know, that, 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 uh, the other story about the hot dog. I mean, that, that's, that's the classic where Craig Jelinek, who is now the CEO, but wasn't then, goes into Jim and says, we can't sell the hot dog for $1.50 anymore. It just, it's not possible. It's, we're losing our shirt. And Jim said, there's no way it's happening. You'll have to kill me first. Figure it out. If you have to open up a hot dog manufacturing plant, do that. Figure it out. That's what they did. They did open a hot dog manufacturing plant eventually. But that hot dog's still a buck fifty and with a pop. You know, the the idea is, is, I love their stories because they, yeah, they kind of bring it they bring it to life. Um this this element that I guess we keep seeing in assessing the quality of businesses from the outside and the inside, the views are often very different. One of the other patterns that we keep seeing is um, kind of the duration of relationships. So in the past businesses, they're actually seated on relationships that are almost multi-decade, maybe even longer relationships. Um, and I guess it'd be interesting just to understand um, from your perspective, like what is the just just at high level? What is the average duration of the supplier relationships in these um, in Canada or, or across the group? Like, is it in 20, 30, 40 year old relationships that continue to endure? And and then the second question is, how much churn do you find in the supplier base over time in those relationships? Because I think the answer might be very different to what people expect. <laughs> Yeah, possibly. Well, to answer the first part of your question, uh, many, many long-term vendors. I can rattle, rattle off a whole bunch of names of people who have been there almost from the beginning, 30 years plus. Wow. There's a whole bunch of them, uh, probably too many to name. Certainly when you're starting off, especially in Canada, which was it was a very small operation in a large country, not a big population base, but a widespread country, some of the vendors initially really weren't that interested in the early days just because it was a very small amount of stores and a lot of cost to, to try to service. But once it became an established brand, you know, I, I, when I was in electronics, which would have been the early to mid-90s, uh, we already had direct relationship, relationships with Sanyo and Toshiba. Uh, Sony came on board a little bit later, Panasonic, uh, and every department has those. Uh, vendors that have been there for 30, 35, can't make it quite to 40 years in Canada because we haven't been open that often, uh, that long. But in the U.S., it would be very much the same. Uh, I still see the products that are made by the same companies that have been there forever. Uh, the turnover rate is, is low. No doubt the turnover rate it's is single low. Single digits low or... I would guess, yeah, I would guess single digit low if I had wow. to guess. Because if I look through, I mean, I was just in Costco yesterday. If I look look through the, uh, I went down quite a few aisles yesterday for some reason, I guess maybe Christmas ideas. And I was seeing the names that I always see in pretty much every aisle. In the, in the house cleaning aisle, it was all the usual brands. Walk through um, more areas where you see imports like dinnerware and glassware and so on. 
but it was it was the same names, hardware. It was the same brands. Uh, I, I didn't see really very few surprises. Every now and then, I'd see a brand say, "Oh, that's new," mm. but but not very often. Very very rare, actually. It, it's a it's a there's a, a huge loyalty factor on both ends. I think. Uh, or three, really. There's the loyalty, the members to the to Costco, huge. The members are extremely loyal, and vice versa, of course. Uh, the vendors are very loyal. The ones that are, are uh, that have been dealing with us for a long time, that can trust that Costco will do the right thing by them as well as doing the right thing by the member. They're very loyal, and the employees are very loyal. The turnover rate is unheard of in retail. It's just uh, totally unheard of. Uh, COVID aside, I'm sure it's been a little tougher the last couple. But if you look at what it historically has been, the turnover rate, once somebody's been with the company for over, I don't know if it's over six months or a year, uh, the turnover rate was low, low single digit. And it remains that way. Like people don't leave. Maybe now is a, a good time to bring the conversation um, to a conclusion with um, with a yeah statement of deep gratitude, Peter, for sharing these, these experiences. Um, we will we'll keep you posted. I think we've got a few things to send over, mm. certainly shortly, to to give you a feel for for where the project's going and and some of the materials we've managed to gather so far. And yeah, and excited to keep you posted on where it goes and and um, and you know who knows what avenues for collaboration it might open up. But um, right. But I think yeah. it's keep it's us in mind been... if forever of of any use. Uh, <laughs> do feel free to to tap us on the shoulder because it's yeah. it's um the to to come across folks who are building businesses like this and and coming from cultures like this. I think it's we we all get very excited around the prospect of being able to to weave more of this <laughs> yeah. into business. So so let us know. It's kind of nice to revisit. I made some notes based on on some of your topics. There, I already had some. I just kind of filled them in with with more stories and so on. But it's kind of nice. It drags your memory, right? And it brings back. They're all good memories. I mean, I I, I can't <laughs> really bring back any real bad memories because there aren't. Uh, it was a, it was just a spectacular company to work for. I was there for almost twenty seven years, and uh, it was health reasons that made me retire a bit earlier than I wanted to, but. I mean, it was it was a great run for sure, especially being there from not the very beginning, but pretty. I would have loved to have been there in 86 when they opened the very first one. I, I was not involved. Uh, but when I did get on board, it was still very, very, very small. And uh, to see the strides when I walk into a Costco today, I'm, I'm still pretty proud to be an, an ex-employee because it's something that, that we built here that uh, would have never happened without uh, the guidance from Jim and, 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 and his team and then the great people that they, they brought on board in Canada, which, by the way, were mostly Bay executives, from the, mostly executives from the Bay that left there to start this unknown entity with one store. And the Bay back then was the biggest retailer in Canada. I mean, Hudson's Bay Company was the be-all, end-all back then. And they left this huge company. They were, they were high-ranking uh, managers. And they left to, to do this. It was pretty wild. I had a lot less to lose than they did. That's for sure. But it's fun to do this. I, I'm uh, anytime that that I can be available. If you need some insight, I, I have. Uh, it's a pleasure to do it. Honestly, mm, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. And for more resources, please visit our website, theartofquality.co. If you think of anyone that could be a good fit for this format, please reach out via the website.